I wanted to first of all start by just uh, thanking everyone that helped out at the workday yesterday. We had a great workday. I came in early this morning when the lights were still on, these front lights are on a timer, and the whole front of it is uh, lit up. Oh, we got pictures. I didn't even know this. This is very good. And, uh, and it looks great. We had people doing electrical stuff. We had people uh, painting. We had people doing landscaping. Yes, and uh, you know, after the, after the work day, I took the sprayers. We rented these sprayers from Home Depot. And uh, I took them back to Home Depot, and the guy stops me in the parking lot. And he says, are you a professional uh, painter? I said, uh, no. He said, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> professional painters don't get that much paint on them. But we were doing this patio, and it's all coming down. I don't know. But anyway, we got a lot done, a lot of cleaning. I don't even know who was all here because I was over in that area the whole time. And so I just want to thank everybody for coming out and helping out. It's, it's not a, it, to me, that's fun work. I love doing that kind of stuff. It's fun because you can see the difference at the end of the day. This whole area, the children's area, the whole area got painted, and it looks fantastic. But it's not only fun because of the work. It's fun because it's fun to work alongside of one another. There's a sense of camaraderie that we're all coming together as a church uh, to do work together. And I think that is actually a good lead-in to our sermon this morning because as we have been going through the book of Acts, what we see is a church that is all together, that has come together to unified to do the work of the Lord. And others are brought in so quickly and so easily. And so this morning we're going to uh, have a sermon on hospitality, but we see this throughout the whole book. One of the main practices of the early church is that they were very hospitable, not only to their brothers and sisters in the Lord, but just to everyone, and, e- and others were uh, quickly brought into the group because this was one of the foundational practices of the early church. This morning I'm hoping to drive home a couple points, and uh, one thing I really want us to think about is that God is a God of hospitality, that He has welcomed us in, that we were once strangers, and now if we have received Jesus, we have become friends. And the second thing I'm hoping to really just uh, drive home is that this is to be part, this is to be one of kind of the, the defining characteristics of our lives, that we show hospitality to one another. This is the second to last sermon we have in Acts. We've been going through Acts for a long time. And so now we are in the last chapter, Acts uh, chapter 28. And it is interesting to me that this is the last recorded story that the, that the, uh, uh, the Acts of the Apostles has recorded. And it is a story about hospitality, but the host is not who we would expect. The hosts in this story are not uh, Christians. But it is the stranger who is a host. And we're going to look at this because the unexpectedness of the story draws our uh, minds around to ask, what is God trying to say here? Acts 28, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Acts 28, 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then 
learned that the island was called Malta. So what we have here is Paul and his companions have been shipwrecked, and they make their way to an island, and then they learn that the island is called Malta. The native people... Now, I'm going to use a different word here, okay? That's the ESV. Um, I think NIV, if I remember right, is just uh, native islanders or something along those lines. But the Greek word is barboio, from which we obviously get our English word barbarian. I'm going to use that word because I actually think it's helpful for us understanding the text. Now, the barbarians showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. When the barbarians saw the creatures hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, now notice justice is capitalized, that's, a ref, that's their word for God. Now, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood... Uh, of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publilus, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publilus lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, The rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Let's pray. Father God, as we are about to look at this text in detail and hopefully now just begin to turn our hearts to what you would have for us, we pray for your help. We pray that you would direct our hearts and our minds to the things that you would have for us today. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be our teacher. And so we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. A movie, A Serious Man, begins with a scene that's not so dissimilar to what we see here described in Acts 28. It was a cold and dreary night in the movie. And it is set in Eastern Europe before World War II. In in the movie, a Jewish man returns to his humble home late at night, and he quickly makes his way to the fire to begin to warm his hands. With the glow of the fire on his face, he begins to tell uh, his wife, who is just uh, just across in the other room in the kitchen, about his event, about the events of the evening. He says that on his way home in this late cold night, a wheel from his cart had fallen off. And he was wondering, what in the world am I going to do? It's late. There's not going to be anyone on the streets. And if they are, it's cold. No one's going to stop and help me. And then he says he was surprised by an old man who came alongside of him and helped put the wheel on his cart. 
And he said that the old man introduced himself by the name of Reb Grashkovner. And the husband reveals that out of gratitude he has invited this stranger to his home to have soup and to warm himself by the fire. And his wife is heard in the other uh, room crying out, Oh no, what have you done? And he says, What are you talking about? I've just invited him over uh, for soup. And he says, No, I knew Reb Groshkovner. And he died three years ago. You've met a ghost. And he's come to, uh, uh, to curse the home. And, he says, and she says this with all seriousness. And they argue back and forth. He says, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? This man helped me on the street until they hear the knock at the door. And then the scene pans out and you see both the husband and the wife simply looking in the direction of the knock. And you can sense the dilemma on their face. Will they open the door and welcome the stranger? Or will they ignore the knock and hope he goes away soon? And it is a genuine emotional struggle because there is a sense of obligation to welcome the cold, hungry stranger. And yet at the same time, there is the fear that the stranger might not be who he says he is and will harm and contaminate them in one way or another. And I And I recount the opening scene of this movie because I believe it reveals a kind of tension that we wrestle with from time to time. On the one hand, we sense that we should probably open our doors and our homes and even our hearts to strangers. And we may even remember with gratitude times when others have done the same for us. And think how others have uh, risked to show us hospitality and to make us feel safe and warm. And yet, on the other hand, we are afraid to welcome the stranger because it is risky. What if the stranger is not peaceful or seeks to take advantage of my hospitality? What if the stranger makes me uncomfortable in one way or another? Or he reveals something within me that needs to change? What if by opening my doors, I expose myself and my loved ones to some emotional harm or really even more at the core of it, some emotional distress, some physical harm or emotional distress? And there are some who come across our paths. By all appearances, we know them to be not safe. And they may take us outside of our comfort zones. And there are physical risks and financial risks and more than anything, emotional risks. And so with all of these very realistic and rational fears and expectations, I want to challenge us this morning as we look at this uh, passage and consider the Bible's message, I want to challenge us to be hospitable to the stranger because it is grounded in this one foundational truth that God is a God of hospitality. That God is a God of hospitality who has welcomed you when you were a stranger from His love. Now think about that for a moment. If we are a Christian and a believer in Jesus Christ... 
All of us were once strangers to God's love. All of us were once alienated from him and did not have a relationship with him. But was it not God who came and knocked on the door of our hearts and offered an invitation to receive us into fellowship with him? And our whole Christian life is based on this loving act of hospitality that while we were yet sinners, while we were foreigners and aliens and strangers to God's love, he comes and he welcomes us in to move us from being strangers to move us to, uh, to becoming friends of his. That is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. And that is why at the end of this service we will gather before the communion table. Every, this, is the, this is the worship practice that Jesus has asked us to do regularly, to take communion together. And isn't it interesting that it is a meal? A meal is the one main act of hospitality. You have people over or you go to a restaurant or some, but you have food and drink and you share together. And it is in that food and drink that barriers are torn down and that we enter into a deeper relationship with one another. And that is what we celebrate when we gather before the Lord's Supper. It is a meal of hospitality. And we remember that we have been drawn into fellowship with Jesus and the elements testify to how that so his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we move from being strangers to friends with, with God. And Jesus, every time we take this Lord's Supper, he again is knocking on our hearts, inviting us to come in and to dine with him and to have fellowship with him. Acts 28 is a fascinating story of hospitality. As I said, it comes, the host is not who we expected it to be. The hosts are not Christians. It is, it are, they are described as barbarians, people who do not know of God's love, but Paul does not turn away from them in the midst of that. In fact, he uh, willingly uh, takes advantage of their hospitality and he receives it. He's been shipwrecked, and he lands on the island of Malta. Malta is just on the southern tip of Italy. And in Paul's day, those that did not speak Greek were known as barbarians. And uh, this was an island in which would have been outside of Greek culture in this way. Now, barbarians we think of as being unsafe, being uncivilized being dangerous. And that is how they were thought of in the first century as well. And so when this passage describes this, uh, verse 2, it says they offered unusual kindness. It is unexpected. In fact, what the reader of the in the first century would have expected is for these barbarians to put Paul and his companions to death. And it reads that way as you uh, listen to the story. It says that the only reason that they are not put to death is because, they mu because the barbarians assume that, there must, that they must have some sort of favor with the gods. And I continue to use the uh, term barbarians because I know it sounds kind of uh, a little bit crass, but it is meant to be shocking. And it is meant to kind of take us out of our comfort zone. 
when we minister to strangers, it is not meant to be easy. It is difficult. It should have us a little shock value to us, to it. And so what we read here is that these people that, ex, uh, that, these people that are so steeped in stup- superstitions that they would recognize Paul is the only way he must have been saved from this shipwreck is the fact that he must have the favor of the, God, of the gods who they understood to be the gods. And what happens next is the strangest part of the story. Here they build this fire, and as the, they're tending the fire, a, a viper comes out, up out of the fire from the heat, and he latches on to Paul's hand. And all of a sudden, it reads kind of like a Harry Potter novel, doesn't it? It's so strange, it ought to grab our attention and say, what in the world is God doing here? All of a sudden, the barbarians uh, say, no, this person doesn't have the favor of the gods. This person must be a murderer. They go 360 uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum and say, this guy is, the guy is receiving the, his just punishment from the gods, from justice. But then Paul simply shakes the viper from his hand and it falls back into, into the fire. And he goes about his, uh, every, his regular business. He's tending the fire. And the people expect Paul's going to surely swell up and fall down dead in just an instant. But he doesn't do that. And then what do they conclude? He doesn't have the favor of the gods. He is a god. Now we look at this in 2018 and we think, a bunch of nuts, you know. They, these barbarians with all their superstitions. Paul obviously wasn't a god. But their claim is not, all into, is not altogether incorrect because Paul did have God living in him. He was not God, but he did not die because God's power dwelt within him. You see, this is a simple truth that we have to make sure we understand. It is the key to not only understanding the power that Paul had, in this passage because he has tremendous power. He will go on to heal all of these people. It is not only the key to understanding the passage, but it is the key to understanding the power of hospitality. It is that, it is this, and this is a principle of Christian hospitality. When we welcome others, we have something special to offer. The presence of God living in us. You see, this is why hospitality ought to be one of our core practices. Why it has such power. Because when we offer ourselves in relationship to another, in some special way, we are offering the presence of God as well. And this is what we see happening here in this passage. These individuals are introduced not only to the power of God, but to the person of Jesus by welcoming Paul and his companions into their midst. That is the first principle of Christian hospitality. The second is this, that the Christian, the Christian practice of hospitality is that when we welcome others, we unwittingly welcome Jesus. See, they didn't know what they were doing, but in welcoming Paul as a stranger... They are welcoming Jesus. And this is what Jesus teaches us. Not just uh, other believers, but in some way, 
when we welcome anyone as a stranger, as someone in need, we are welcoming, even unwittingly welcoming, Jesus himself. Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, and he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And the hearers of Jesus' parable said, Lord, when did we do these things? And he says, Whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done for me. And so whenever we uh, practice hospitality, especially to the stranger, especially to the needy or the hurting person, we are unwittingly welcoming Jesus himself. And Jesus could not make this parable any stronger because he says those who fail to show uh, merciful acts of hospitality will be thrown into the everlasting fire prepared for the devils and his angels. Now that is some pretty strong teaching from Jesus. But that shows how, how this should be a core act of our lives as, Christ, as Christians. It's not that we earn our salvation as, uh, by being hospitable. It's the fact that w- this is how we actually live out our salvation. Because we are now imitating the person of Jesus himself. This is how Jesus lived. Jesus was always practicing hosp- hospitality. Just read through the Gospels. In Luke 7, we're, giving, we're given a story of a prostitute who comes while Jesus is reclining at the table and she begins to wet his feet with her tears and with perfume and dry them with her hair. And, and the Pharisees say, why would Jesus ever entertain the presence of such a woman uh, Luke 7, 39, it says, If this man were a prophet, the Pharisees say, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus is receiving it all. He's practicing hospitality because he loves her and welcomes her into her presence. Not just for a moment, but by forgiving her sins into a relationship with him forever. Another story of hospitality, Luke 5. Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to come and to follow him. Tax collectors, just to give you some background information, they were considered the worst of the worst. These guys made their living by by ripping others off. They were a bunch of frauds. And yet Jesus invites Levi, the tax collector, to come and to follow him. And again, the teachers of the day, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in this statement of Jesus, we receive our call as well. We are called to welcome others in Jesus' name so that they might come into connection with God's love. Jesus taught us this is what we should do. And especially to those that are not uh, considered, quote-unquote, safe. He said, Luke 14, 13 and 14, When you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, for they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. One last story, and this one I think is very helpful for us to understand 
hospitality. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha, two of Jesus' closest friends, they invite Jesus over for a meal. And Mary's in the back kitchen preparing all the food, and she's getting ticked off and frustrated until she finally comes out and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve you alone? Tell her then to help me. And uh, Jesus simply says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What is the one good thing that Mary has done? Simply to sit at the feet of Jesus and to be in his presence. You see, that's what we're talking about in hospitality. We're not talking about having a really great meal and impressing people of how clean your house is or that you can pick up an expensive tab at the restaurant. What we're talking about is simply just being present with one another. And in being present with one another, we can introduce people to the person of Jesus. This is what we see Jesus doing. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts. The third principle of Christian hospitality is this, that when we welcome others, we are imitating Jesus. The early Christians, they had no seminary. They had no big buildings. They had no... All they knew to do was just the things they saw Jesus doing. And what do we see them doing? Day by day, attending the temple courts together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, they were welcoming more and more people. Come on in. They meet in the temple courts. They meet in their homes. They eat together. And in all of this, somehow they imitate the ministry of Jesus himself. Somehow, just out of all of this hospitality, they naturally praise God and pray with one another and care for one another, help meeting the needs with one another. And so there are all kinds of stories of hospitality. Now let me back up and say that is wonderful for... for, uh, century Palestine, but what about Southern California in, 2000, in 2018? This is a, radical different ti- a radically different time that we live in. And my point is, I don't know what it's going to look f- like for you, but let us not miss the goal of what we have in mind here. Our goal is to transform people from being a stranger to a friend. So however that looks for you, this is our call as Christians, to help people to come into a relationship with us and hopefully over the long haul into a relationship with Jesus. That's the last principle of hospitality. When we welcome others, our goal is to transform a stranger into a friend. And so we offer food and conversation in our homes and to meet people at a restaurant But more than anything, we offer to people ourselves, our hearts, and we invite them to to become friends with us and hopefully in the process to become friends with Jesus. I think that's a beautiful picture of the early church. In fact, I think that is a beautiful picture for our Christian lives uh, together today as well. 
And I'm going to just move down here by the Lord's Supper. I'm not quite done with the message, but I just want to stand before the table because I want us to take application. There's obvious application that we ought to do this and practice this in our lives. But the first application that I want to give to today's sermon is to recognize for you to recognize that you are an undeserving recipient of God's hospitality. More than anything, as I prepared the sermon for this week, I just wanted to rest in that truth. Because I don't really think we appreciate the communion table until we take a minute and recognize that we are undeserving recipients of God's hospitality. I am afraid that too quickly we forget that God has welcomed us in when we were once far from him. I myself, if I have thought about this week, I sometimes forget all that God has done for me. I've been to seminary. I've had a lot of Bible classes. I've now preached a lot of sermons. I've sung a lot of Christian songs and been in a lot of Bible studies. And I do all of these things and I forget that, no, I am the tax collector. I am the prostitute that knelt at Jesus' feet and, uh, and washed his feet with my tears. And until we remember from what God has saved us, none of this makes any sense. We might as well do it all on our own. But when we come into contact with the love of Jesus, we realize how far he has ta- from, from how far he has brought us. That we were once far from him, aliens to his love, having no idea who he was or what he has done for us. But now we gather around the table and we take this bread and we remember that Jesus actually died so that we could be his friend. And we take this cup And we remember that his blood was shed so that we would no longer not only be a stranger but an enemy of his. And now we are his friends. And so I'm going to invite us this morning just to remember this. As the bread is passed and the cup is passed, The application of today's sermon is, first of all, to recognize that we are undeserving recipients of God's love. And I think when that sinks down deep into our hearts, then that other kind of application will all come flowing out. We will be motivated to love the stranger, to love the person that doesn't seem so quote-unquote safe. Because we remember all that God has done for us. And so I'm going to invite us just to be like Martha this morning. To sit at the feet of Jesus. And simply just revel in the idea of being in his presence. To have that wonderful feeling that Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to die on the cross for me that I was once far from him, as Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And that, that what we partake of here re- helps us recall all that God has done for us. So maybe we think too highly of ourselves, but also the, uh, there is another danger that we might think we are stuck in the lowness of our sin. You see, as we gather around the table as well, we uh, learn that we are not defined by our addictions, by our marital failures, by our economic conditions, by our past sins and indiscretions. We learn that we are no longer defined by those things, but being in Jesus' presence, we learn that we are defined as a friend of His, a child of God. And so all of us together, before the communion table, we are welcomed and made whole. This is the ministry of hospitality. First of all, that Jesus welcomes us in, and then eventually He says to go and do likewise, to offer hospitality to others so that they might come to know Jesus as friend as well. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward now. And as they do... I just want to take a minute and for us to quiet our hearts. There's a verse in Revelation 3, verse 20, and it says, this is Jesus speaking, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my voice and welcome me in, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And so now, Jesus, we just come before you and we pray that as these plates are passed with little pieces of bread and little cups of juice, we pray that we would recognize that you are knocking on the door of our hearts. And again, you are inviting us in. Again, you are reminding us of how much you love us, that we are no longer Uh, strangers to your love, but that we are welcomed into your presence as friends, as those who might receive you and to enter into fellowship with you. And so I pray that as we have these quiet moments together, we would just simply be like Martha and we would sit at your feet and we would take it all in. How is it that you could love us so much? How is it that you would uh, find it a good thing to die on the cross so that we might enter into a relationship with you? And I pray that all of these thoughts would just wash over our hearts and fill us with gratitude because we recognize that you have done so much for us. And so, God, in the quietness of these moments, just come and meet with us and draw us close to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.